Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome, everybody, to another subcast. And this week, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Henry Olson. Uh, Henry is a Washington Post columnist, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And I think we've all got those analysts that we love to follow, the people that really have their finger on the pulse. Uh, Henry is one of those analysts that I have always read, I've always followed. I think he's incredibly insightful on American politics and what's happening to the Republican Party, what's happening to the Democrats. He also has a good grasp of what's happening in British politics and also Europe. Uh, he's a must-follow on Twitter, and I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Henry today. So, Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. So, Henry, where I'd like to start off, really, is is just with you giving our listeners a, a sense of the lay of the land going into the midterms, uh, how things are looking stateside in terms of the Republicans and the Democrats lining up, because... Obviously, in a, in a sense, this is a contest for the Democrats, uh, really, to, historically at least, is one of the contests that, that the incumbent party tends to struggle with. And when you look at Biden's ratings until recently, uh, it looked like, uh, really, this was going to be a pretty comprehensive Republican victory. But what, what are you picking up on your side? How does the landscape look where you are? I think there's still a good chance that there'll be a comprehensive Republican victory. Biden's recent resurgence in job approval still leaves him with among the lowest job approvals at a this point in the presidency since World War II. He's at only 42.5%. And parties with presidents that unpopular typically lose a lot of seats in the House and lose, uh, lose a number of seats in the Senate if the seats uh, up. Uh, or match the overall partisan distribution of the country. What's happened in the last couple of months is a, a story of the Democrats charging back. They're ahead in some of the generic ballot polls. They've won some special elections and outperformed their baseline and others. Um, I think that this is a false dawn. I think that the as long as Joe Biden's job approvals remain where they are, 42, 43, 44%, that this will be a significant Republican night because in the end, people who are upset with the economy will end up voting against the party in power. And mo even most polls show that the democratic issues of democracy and abortion are energizing their voters, but not necessarily reaching independence. It's fascinating to look at the economic context. We just had uh, Sir John Curtis on the subcast making a similar point about British politics, that historically when you've had prime ministers and governments presiding over uh, high inflation and uh, a, a weak pound, that they have tended to struggle at the next election. And the examples that John gave in British politics were ones like 1967, 1976, 1991, 2008, the big financial crisis, and all of those were followed by the incumbent party or leader really suffering. And it seems to me, looking at the historic data on the US at least, that because of Biden's job approvals going into uh, this uh, the, the, the midterms, 
um, things were already looking pretty bleak for the Democrats. You then now add on top inflation, um, you know, a, a cost of living crisis, uh, rising economic pessimism. And it seems to me that actually much of the commentary about the Democrat revival, it just doesn't seem to sit right with my instincts on this. I just think perhaps the Republicans are going to end up certainly taking back the House and and possibly also the Senate. But how do you see how do you see that playing out um, in November? Yeah, I I I agree that I think that the the commentary is overblown. The commentary is, um, in some sense, hopeful, uh, as because most of the commentators lean to the Democrats, and they're definitely pro-abortion rights. Uh, and I think they're reading, in many cases, their own hopes into the data. You know, what the data show is that if you're a Democrat, you're voting for Democrats, even if you're unhappy with Joe Biden. If you're a Republican, you're voting against. And then about a third of our nation uh, are people who are between the parties. And most of the people who are undecided right now strongly disapprove of Joe Biden. So it's difficult to see why people who disapprove of Joe Biden are going to decide to vote for his party's candidates. That's simply not what we've seen in prior elections. And uh, there's an interesting um, article recently from the editor of Real Clear Politics who points out that in the last two Republican victory years, um, you saw a narrowing of the gap in August, but then Republicans regaining the gap, uh, the lead in September and October as campaign decision. I suspect we'll see that as well, that unless independents change their mind about Joe Biden, they will decide in the end of the day to go against Joe Biden's party. And that means that the Democratic uh, dawn is a false one. And one of the things that uh, that I found quite interesting looking at the midterms from over here is if you if you look at the overall uh uh, debate that's playing out within within the Democrats. It seems to me, you know, we that you have a movement there that that seems to be quite openly divided between a more radical, progressive left, the sort of AOCs, the Squad, etc., and then your sort of moderate centre left type faction, and that this tension has has really stayed quite visible within the party since the 2020 presidential election. Um, I mean, how how much of a problem is that internal tension for Biden? Because it seems that he's obviously put all of his chips now into this strategy that is to frame uh, Donald Trump and much of the Republican movement as a so-called sort of MAGA threat to democracy. Uh, I suspect he's probably hoping that that will appeal to independents. It will probably bring in many of those voters that you're pointing to that might disapprove of Biden but would disapprove of Donald Trump more strongly. Is this strategy going to be enough to firstly hold together his party and the fragmenting Democrats and secondly win over those independents? Or do you think there, there are problems with that strategy? I think there are a lot of problems with that strategy. I think it will definitely hold his party. Uh, the question is whether or not it will appeal to independents. And I think that's not going to happen. Um, essentially, what he's done uh, in his strategy is appeal to progressives 
to talk about their issues, uh, even if it's not 100% of what they want. Uh, he's talking about Trump's alleged threat to democracy. He's talking about climate change, and that activates and energizes the left of his party. But all the polls show that this is not something that really appeals to independents. So I think what he's done is silence the talk within his party that had in the summer that he is a loser and um, ought not to run again, but has not really adopted a strategy that will bring independents who haven't liked his presidency for most of the last year over into his and his party's camp. I, I guess looking at uh, Europe and also Britain, I suppose the deeper question really is whether folks on the liberal left have actually come up with a you know serious reply to the rise of populism or the new conservatism that you know it seems to me that a lot of people on the liberal left are much more comfortable in saying what is wrong with those movements than actually addressing the root drivers of why people are voting for them in the first place you know there hasn't been for example uh, in much of europe and including britain there hasn't really been much of a discussion about addressing their concerns over um things like migration, their lack of voice in the political system, their lack of representation in many of the institutions, more radical economic policies that might deal with inequality, redistribution, those kinds of things. Do you see the same in America, or, or am I sort of projecting what I'm seeing in Europe and Britain onto America? No, it's very much the same thing here, is that um, yeah, there is a center-left and a center-right uh, within the elite uh, institutional players and political players. And within the Democratic Party, you have a strong left wing, by American standards, left wing, uh, that's not only doesn't want to deal with those issues, but actively wants to stoke the fires that lead to those concerns. You know, the, the sort of, of people who really don't want to see our immigration laws enforced. Uh, people who want to push all of the elements of the culture war from uh, race to gender to feelings about crime and police. Uh, and they're simply not willing to make an accommodation uh, other than staying silent in, uh, at times. But they're not willing to actually address the concerns that people have. And so you have, on the one hand, center left and center right that are in denial that populism is a rational response to actual issues. And you have a left that wants to push their agenda to a point that is making the desire for populism stronger. So that's in fact what we're seeing in the United States, much as we're seeing in the rest of the in the rest of the developed world, is that national populism is growing stronger rather than growing weaker, precisely because the issues that are giving rise to those feelings are either being attacked or addressed. And one of the trends that I've been particularly struck by in U.S. politics has been the shift among Latino, Hispanic voters from left to right. One of the old arguments in American politics going back a very long time is that essentially demography is destiny, that the Democrats would be given large and unassailable majorities as rising numbers of minority voters, uh, college graduates, 
young voters rally around. And, and this argument, of course, was particularly popular during the uh, uh, era of Barack Obama, but it's still also very popular, actually, on parts of the left in Britain and Europe, which says that actually as Western societies become more diverse, uh, inevitably the beneficiary of that will be left-wing parties. But in the US, we can see significant numbers of Latino-Hispanic voters moving left to right. And having looked at some of the research on that over the last couple of months, I've been struck, firstly, at the extent to which they felt that Joe Biden and the Democrats' position on lockdowns and COVID was not the one they wanted to see. But secondly, also, they register their fears over policies like defund the police, about this perception that the Democrats have become a radical left political project, which for some of them, of course, kindles memories of what they've seen in Southern America and places like Cuba and so on. But I'm not an expert on this, Henry. I mean, what's going on there? What's driving that shift among a very large and growing section of the electorate that's now moving from left to, to right? I think a number of those things are accurate, uh, Matt. I think uh, that there is a large segment of the Latino community that is working class, moderately conservative, but which had voted with the Democratic Party because they didn't see a Republican Party that was really concerned with them. In the Trump era, the Republican Party shifted in tone to address issues and speak in a voice that was actually much friendlier to center-right Latinos and centrist Latinos. And contrary to all of the predictions from the left-wing uh, and even the right-wing elites, uh, Trump has increased. Trump's populism has increased the attachment or interest of Latinos in the last two years for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, you have the cultural issues that you've spoken about, that uh, people in communities that are being hit by crime want to protect their lives and their property. They don't want to defund the police. They don't see themselves as victims of systemic racism, and they see a party that is focused on capping them as victims rather than as actors, and they don't like that. But the, the thing we also have to remember is that when you have a million people, you know, Britain is talking about a few thousand people coming across the English Channel on boats. We have a few thousand people a day who cross the southern border. Uh, we have a million people a year who are being let into the country by Joe Biden's non-enforcement of immigration laws, roughly 3,000 people a day. And where do those people settle? They don't go to the white-dominated, high-income precincts that the elites live in. They go to Hispanic communities. They come across in Hispanic communities. And I think what you see is a lot of uh, American born or uh, citizen Hispanics say, we don't want this chaos. This chaos is wrecking our communities. And so what's happening at our border is, I think, one of the single biggest issues as to why particularly Mexican-born Hispanics, who are about two-thirds to 70 percent of the American Hispanic population, why they are rapidly moving towards the Republican Party in anger at a Democratic Party that simply seems to not care about their genuine concerns. And it's quite striking to me because if I look at, say, British Indians in British politics, and you can see also to some extent, I think, among the more specific British Muslim communities, you can actually see some similar shifts taking place. Um, voters that are quite socially conservative on social and cultural issues, one in three of Britain's 
black and minority ethnic voters supported Brexit, of course. It's one of those statistics that we don't tend to hear too much about. Um, but on some of these cultural questions, and I think among British Indians, you are beginning to see a bit of a shift from left to right, perhaps not as dramatic as some of the shifts we've seen in American politics. But there is, again, I think, a, a, just a little bit of evidence to kind of challenge this notion that demography uh, is destiny. And I think it's definitely one of the trends that we need to watch going into 2024, which brings me really back to the Republicans. And, you know, as far as we're concerned over here, you know, Donald Trump is lining up for another run. I think lots of people who are listening to this subcast, who are reading the Substack, will will be interested in some other candidates, Ron DeSantis, notably in Florida, the governor who has been, you know, policy savvy in terms of some of the things he's done around schooling, universities. He opposed lockdowns. Uh, he opposed Disney. He sought to remove some of the tax breaks for big companies that he perceived to be anti-American or pro-woke. Um, just give us your sense, Henry, of how things are going to move as we go through the midterms into 2023 on the Republican side. I think, firstly, is Trump going to run? But secondly, what kind of competition is he going to face from other candidates? Or is that competition just going to fall away the moment Trump says he's running? I think the, you know, the big question is whether Ron DeSantis will challenge Trump. If you look at the Republican electorate, you get a division of, in, of it into four parts. The first part, I've always opposed Trump. Uh, these are the types that you'll see in American media, but they're actually, as I said, very small among the electorate. This is the sort of people who think Larry Hogan would be a wonderful presidential candidate, the outgoing governor of uh, Maryland. Then you have about a quarter who are unreformed old guard conservatives. They liked Trump's presidency because Trump followed through on many of their priorities, but they've moved on from him. They were never that into him personally, and they want somebody different. These are the people that Nikki Haley and Mike Pence appeal to, and a subset of them Ted Cruz appeals to. But then you've got what I would say are the two-thirds of the party that are broadly Trump-aligned, um, and they divide roughly in half. I would say about a quarter to 30% of the party are Trump diehards. These are people who absolutely love what he says, they love the person, and these are the people who show up at the rallies. And then you've got the remainder, which is the center of Republican opinion, which is Trump-friendly, but willing to look at somebody else. And this is why Ron DeSantis is, I believe, the only person who can defeat Donald Trump, because only DeSantis has credibility with this crowd. His uh, aggressive uh, opposition to media priorities, his keeping the state open as much as possible during COVID, his striking cultural themes that resonate with these voters, he's competitive with Trump among these voters. And I think if he were to run, then Trump might beat him, but Trump might not beat him because the longer he would be able to stand as a credible alternative, the more I think people who are in that Trump-adjacent space would say, you know, I think I've got somebody better than Trump. And so I think if DeSantis runs, it would be a race. I think if DeSantis doesn't run, um, uh, Trump will be the nominee because none of the other 
plausible contenders in terms of name identification have credibility with this group. You see that, you know, that Mike Pence is somebody who would be opposed by the Trump-adjacent group for various reasons. So I think if Trump does run, and I think there's like a 90% chance Trump will announce shortly after the midterms, then I think eventually you'll see that it's really a two-person race. And if DeSantis doesn't get into it, it'll be a coronation. And that really leads me into the question about the nature of republicanism in, in the U.S. or the Republican movement. Uh, here in Britain, we have been having a very an interesting debate about the nature of conservative politics after Brexit. And I think it's fair to say there is now a consensus that Liz Truss, in many respects, represents a return to pre-Brexit conservative politics as somebody that is loyal to Thatcherite principles, who is economically liberal, who is not particularly animated by many of the issues that some of her voters are animated about on many of the cultural questions, um, and that perhaps there's a growing realisation among many voters and also some conservatives that that opportunity to realign the Conservative Party may be, uh, may be uh, uh, slipping away. Um, I look at the Republicans in, in the US, and it's quite clear there is no return to a sort of Mitt Romney, you know, moderate sort of centrist brand of Republican politics or whatever you want to call it, the George Bush type era, for example. It seems to me that the Republican movement has been realigned by Trump in quite profound ways. It seems to me that that is either a, a long-term realignment or maybe even a permanent uh, realignment is that is that your sense? I mean, could you tell me about how the axis of Republican politics has been moving? I think um, there's a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that has struck me about British conservative politics is how little the Conservative Party has understood its electoral success. That going back to the 2010 election, I was on an AEI panel uh, shortly afterwards, and I argued that the future uh, uh, that David Cameron won despite himself, that he picked up working class votes that he had consciously not targeted in his attempt to rebrand the Conservative Party. And that even then, even though Labour held seats like Sedgefield and Hartlepool, you could see the movement away. Uh, and of course, the 2010s through Brexit and uh, the Johnson victory saw exactly that happen, you know, which was that the Tory party moved from a party of the South to a party that represented all or had bases in virtually all areas and classes of, of England. The Conservative Party in Britain seems not to recognize this and is, go, is not doing anything to consolidate its realignment. The Republican Party is actually in a similar state, which is that you've got this realignment that is taking place despite what all of the Republican consultants and officials actually want to happen, that there remains at the elite level a strong resistance to this. You find consultants who are running our individual campaigns, which are much more important than similar people. Imagine Linton Crosby and multiplying by 150, and that's what you've got in the United States. They tend not to understand the working class concerns that are driving voters, and so they urge their candidates to campaign in ham-handed ways that don't actually help bring about the realignment. So. The Republican Party is going to be a working class party. The 
question is, will it have a presidential candidate who understands this and leans into it? Or will you have somebody who um, uh, is happy to take their votes, but will get them almost by default? And that's the open question. Uh, certainly, uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ted Cruz are in the camp that they're happy to take their votes, but they don't understand how to get them. Donald Trump is somebody who understands how to get them, but has no coherent policy to actually do something about most of their concerns, save immigration. And that, again, places a huge burden on Ron DeSantis, who seems to understand this, but has not yet taken positions on questions of foreign policy or economic policy that are required as of a national candidate to actually remake the party in a working class way, which will make some people in the elites uncomfortable because it will no longer be a small state party. It will be a limited state party. And that's a different thing. Um, so I'd say the jury is out, but we're farther along with more positive hopes for bringing the realignment to bear than I see in the British Conservative Party right now. Yeah, I certainly share that sentiment. I think if you look at most conservative MPs, conservative donors, conservative activists, I think there is a shared sense that that they're not entirely sure who is voting for them outside of Surrey and Hampshire. Um, and secondly, they're not entirely sure how they can keep those voters on side or in some cases win those voters back. Uh, Liz Truss is currently only really holding around half of the people who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. I mean, she's gambling that tax cuts and a big energy plan are, are going to win those voters back uh, while saying so far very little about you know the small boats crossing the english channel or migration or you know cultural you know woke type issues or uh, all those kinds of things um and i'm i'm just skeptical at the moment that the conservative party is going to be able to both hold and extend much of the red wall areas that it won less than three years ago and I'm not. I, I think the problem is not demand. I think the demand is clearly there. I think. I think the problem is supply and 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 whether we we just have political parties in Western democracies now that because of path dependency, because of where they've come from in the past and so on, they're just not really able to bend in the direction that is required to really maximise that space. Um, but the other thing, you know, that that I'm wondering, looking at American politics. And in particular, looking at the looking at the Democrats, I mean, let's let's assume you're right, Henry. Let's say the Democrats really do suffer a big loss in November. Let's say much of the commentary is wrong, and, and let's say they lose the House and the Senate. Would that be a wake up call for the Democrats? Would that bring about considerable change? I assume it would provoke some kind of debate about, you know, firstly, who's the nominee for 2024, but secondly, is it actually time for the Democrats to really put more distance between them and the progressive radical left or or or, or will that not happen what's your sense of, of what a big loss would bring about i think a big loss will bring the 30-year war between the left and the center left to a head that the left will argue that it was produced by not leaning far enough into their priorities not by leaning too far into them Remember, Britain's Labour Party went from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown to Ed Miliband to Jeremy Corbyn, that what you had to electoral defeat 
and electoral disappointment was not a move to the center until it culminated in the left getting its way and then seeing disaster. The American left has not nominated an American president in quite some time. The American left feels disenfranchised in the party that they feel in, uh, that they have to be part of because we have a two-party system. So if we end up, despite everything, with a Democratic seat loss of 30 seats or more in the House and two or more seats in the Senate, they will launch a move to get Biden out. And if Biden chooses to run again, there will be a challenger to him. And that person could win and that they might finally have their dream of a nominee. So uh, it won't some people in the Democratic elites will say, oh, look what happened, we need to move to the center. But among Democratic voters, and remember, in our system, the leaders are chosen by voters through open primaries, not in any sense even by paying members. It really is a voter question. The Democratic voters will have a big say, and they will want to move the party to the left. And I think the question is, how far to the left? will the next nominee go? Uh, I don't think if they lose 30 or more seats, the next nominee will be Joe Biden. Well, if that's true, then I imagine that would also be a dream scenario for a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis. I mean, I would remind our American uh, listeners and observers of, of what happened in British politics when the Labour Party swung sharply to the left with Corbyn. You know, I think 2017, in some sense, was a false dawn for the for the radical left, uh, for, for lots of different reasons, but 2019 was was really the you know the the, the new piece of evidence after 1983 and Michael Foot that radical left politics does not play well on the national stage. Um, it does not do well at, at bringing together a long-term durable coalition. And arguably, were it not for Jeremy Corbyn, Labour probably would have held a bigger chunk of the red wall. Um, I mean, so I, that would be a warning from British politics. I think that's exactly right. And the question is, what type of leftist would you get? Would you get a firebrand like an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, uh, continuing the trend of ultra-young uh, female leaders that we've tended to see uh, parties of the left swing towards, like Finland or Iceland or New Zealand? Um, would it be... Uh, kind of uh, the Brahmin left, uh, which would be the progressivism of, of Elizabeth Warren that may speak about class, but through the um, uh, heavily tinted eyes of, of Harvard Yard. You know, would it be um, uh, somebody, uh, and Gavin Newsom would be part of the Brahmin left if he were the governor of California, if he were to do. So the nature of the leftism, uh, yeah, in a sense, would it be Jeremy Corbyn or Ed Miliband is important. Uh, to, to, to take into account. Uh, Trump is a polarizing figure, that there are many people who would be repelled by a left-wing Democratic Party who are also repelled by Donald Trump. Um, I, I, I don't really know that there's a counterpart to Donald Trump in British politics. Um, the closest would be Nigel Farage. You know, if you imagine yourself to be a moderate liberal Democrat or moderate voter in Surrey, and you say your choice for prime minister is either Jeremy Corbyn or Nigel Farage, and in a two-party system, that would not be one that they would be happy with. <laughs> um, but Ron DeSantis could easily 
uh, ride that to a massive victory if he were the nominee. And that, again, places a premium on the Republican Party, ditching Trump as its standard bearer while um, adopting many of the themes and actually making them more serious in their application that Trump brought to the fore. One of the things that anybody uh, from Europe I think would want to hear your thoughts about is not just the the sort of polarization within the parties, but actually the polarization within American society more generally. And looking at America from the UK, um, it seems to me that actually you now have a deeply polarized society that is partly polarized by education. We've got sort of education-based polarization between graduates and non-graduates, which is now compounded by generational polarization between the young and old and also then by geography between the, the big cities and the and the sort of smaller towns and, and rural areas. And if anything, it just it seems to me, and I think the, the recent data that came out of Pew Research Center sort of showed this showed this and backed this up. You know, it seems to me that the polarization between Democrats and Republicans and between liberals and conservatives in American politics is is just accelerating and if you look at the reaction to trump in particular and you look at both how white graduate liberals responded to trump by doubling down on their their liberalism by becoming even more left-wing on cultural issues and then on the other hand how conservatives have responded to biden becoming more concerned arguably about immigration about borders you know buying into many of the narratives about the 2020 um, presidential election. It, I, I don't see how America puts this genie back in the bottle, how it how it resolves this lingering polarization. And you've written about American politics for, for years, if not decades. I mean, where, what's your sense of this? How, how, how does this play out? What's the end of this? Well, I can take a gloomy view or a non-gloomy view. Um, what is increasingly happening in the United States is what I wrote about in um, Unheard uh, when I worked before I joined the Post a few years ago, which is that we're going through a what, uh, a binary conflict over values, which is uh, seen uh, most historically in the battle in uh, the religious wars in Europe in the uh, 16th through the, uh, 17th centuries where you had to be one or the other. And uh, when uh, you get into a situation like that, there's no compromise. Uh, and the, the, the ways out are not appealing. Uh, and what we really need in this country is somebody who can find a way to get us out of this binary conflict of values, one that defines an Americanism in a way that gives place for change while also respecting tradition. Uh, but instead, what we have is change versus tra tradition, you know, uh, movement versus stasis. And that means you're just going to likely have uh, increasing recriminations uh, and increasing bitterness between the sides. And that's not good for the body politic because ultimately liberal democracy rests on the quaint notion of the loyal opposition, that you can be ferociously opposed to the party in power while being loyal to the nation as a whole. We're losing the idea of the loyal opposition 
in the United States because of this. And once that idea is gone, then the center can't hold, the republic can't hold. So that's the gloomy interpretation. And what I hope is we have somebody who understands this come to the presidency sometime soon uh, and begin to navigate us away from this. Do you think the U.S. will actually hang together? I mean, it's a big, it's a big question, and I don't want to be, I don't want to catastrophize. But when I look at the response of, you know, some individual states to the Trump presidency or the abortion ruling, or I look at how conservatives respond to, you know, their sense that 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 their profoundly held concerns are not being taken seriously, both by the institutions and by the political class. Um, I mean, do you actually think the republic holds together? There's a non-trivial chance that it wouldn't, um, that you have such geographic concentration of the forces of progressive change, largely in the northeast, on the coast, and on in the, the Pacific coast, that uh, are also economically powerful. One could imagine that if they did lose a number of elections, that they would see no reason uh, to continue to uh, consort with people who they believe to be beneath them uh, and contemptible. Uh, so I don't think a dissolution would come from the right. I think it would come from the left in reaction to a decade or more of conservative victories that do not create this uh, new American identity in which that they can see that they have a part. I think the thing I worry more about, actually, is you see an um, increasing degree of discrimination that is brought in against the group that is losing elections in order to ensure that they have no chance of winning power, you know, which would say discriminating against people from backgrounds into uh, being able to openly express their views consistent with holding a job or being able to access uh, the educational pathways that open doors in leading institutions. I could see if there were going to be a left-wing dominance uh, over the next few years that you could increasingly see that type of uh, soft despotism. Uh, that would merely make the country harder to govern, but would secure one side's um, access and power. I think it's an interesting point, given the systemic bias that seems to exist within the the U.S. system. That if if I'm right, uh, reading uh, some of the work in the U.S. recently, that as we go forward, because of the geographical distribution of voters in American politics. Essentially, it is going to become harder for the Democrats to win the White House in, in years to come, that essentially they will need to be polling, uh, you know, 52, 53, 54% of the vote in order to overcome uh, this sort of systemic bias within, within the electoral system. And that, in turn, I think raises a a number of profound questions around voter psychology, around perceptions of loss, around legitimacy in the system, which I think you can already see playing out in, in American politics on both sides. I mean, I'm personally apprehensive about 2024 because it's likely to see both sides contest the legitimacy of the election uh, for different reasons. I mean, it's, the, it's just the the mechanics of the system, the mechanics of the electoral system in the U.S. now, 
also playing into this this debate and this sense that uh, you know on one side that actually the the system is rigged and and, and the game is rigged against them. It, uh, it is. You know, progressives are increasingly upset at the Senate uh, because it uh, gives a greater weight to voters who do not reside in our large states. And um, unless Democrats find a way to reverse their uh, slide among working class whites and Hispanics, it'll be almost impossible for them to win the Senate because of that. You know, they can win larger and larger majorities in the top 15 metropolitan areas, but that doesn't give them power in the Senate. And because our president is elected through the Electoral College, which is distributed in part on the basis of senatorial votes, it also makes it increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for them to win the, you know, the, the, the presidency on narrow majorities. Uh, and so what you're seeing is progressives increasingly argue for a majoritarian rule, you know, which would uh, mean uh, in some way uh, eliminating or curtailing the Senate, moving away from the Electoral College, allowing 51 to 49 majorities from, uh, from the coast to be able to exert total political power. And that's incredibly destabilizing, uh, precisely because uh, the people who are on the other end of that, the Republicans uh, in, the, in the smaller areas, see these as their bulwarks. They're the ones, these are these institutional elements that give them a belief that they can uh, not be entirely have their, their way of life wiped out by a resurgent uh, progressive narrow majority you know, because of these things would be it'd be really helpful if one candidate could win something that no candidate has won in uh since ronald reagan more than 53 percent of the vote looking ahead uh if i've heard you right you're you're pretty confident that we're looking at a republican victory perhaps a, a pretty convincing one in november can i put you on the spot and 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 forecast a a Biden v. Trump too, if that is indeed what's going to happen in 24. I, I mean, what's your what's your gut reaction on uh, in terms of how that plays out? What I feel confident about predicting is that the Republicans will control the House. Um, I feel reasonably confident that they'll also control the Senate, and I think there's a substantial possibility that 2022 will be more like the red wave many of us thought in the summer was going to happen than is the case now. You know, that um, uh, I, I think there's a greater chance of Republicans winning more than 25 seats in the House and winning more two or more seats in the Senate than there is set Democrats having control of the Senate or the Republicans winning 10 House seats or less. Um, I don't think there will be Biden versus Trump, too. Um, I think that one or both of them will lose. Uh, I think that uh, either Biden won't run or he'll be defeated. And uh, I think there's a substantial chance that Trump is not going to be the nominee for a host of reasons that could be health-related. You know, the man is in his mid-70s and not exactly a paragon of physical fitness. Uh, but there's the legal questions, there's the monetary uh, questions, and then you've got the DeSantis challenges that I could easily see. DeSantis deciding that this is his moment, uh, that 
Shakespeare, you know, the, the line about tide and affairs of man and, you know, flowing quickly. And I think DeSantis would be wise to recognize that this is his moment. There will never be a time when he is looked at as clearly as an old, as presidential figure as in t January of 2023. And he'd better darn well take the plunge. And I could see him winning. So I will be confident that there's not going to be Biden versus Trump, too, because I think one or both will not be the nominee. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, I'm just going to um, also ask you, Henry, for your views of our new prime minister, Liz Truss. I mean, from America, um, I, I, I can imagine, given the news of the Queen's passing, that Liz Truss is probably not not really made much of an impression so far. But what's your what's your sense within the Washington and political galaxy about our new prime minister? Is this somebody that you that you see as being on the landscape for a long time to come? Or I mean what's your initial impression of trust? I have two competing impressions of trust. Um, I wrote a column giving the positive assessment of trust is that this is a person who has displayed ambition, determination, and cunning to get to be the third youngest prime minister in the last, uh, you know, since the 1850s. You know, only Cameron and Blair were younger than she was uh, when she, when she um, uh, ascended the greasy pole. So that's the positive assessment of somebody um, of, of trust is that she's somebody who is being uh, underestimated dramatically by elites in in Whitehall, Westminster, and in Washington. The negative assessment runs into what you were talking about, which is does she understand where the votes come from? Um, she has been running as a Thatcherite. Um, she would be well advised to um, to if not, is to interpret that loosely uh, and broadly. She has to stop the boats. She has to reduce legal migration levels. That's not something that the Southern Shires want, uh, but she has to do that. She has to stand up for the crown. She has to stand up for the union. You know, uh, she has to stand against wokeness. And since she sidelined people like Kebby, you know, Kemi Badnock could have been her woke warrior, but she, uh, you know, in some ways wisely brought her close, but not too close, and didn't give her a portfolio where it's the most obvious thing for her to become an alternative to trust. She needs to take that on herself, um, and what she needs to do is is also lean as much into the building aspect of her economic program as her tax-cutting aspect. And I listened to her short speech, and she talked about priority one and you know taxes and reform, but she also talked about building, putting spades in the ground. If she's putting spades in the ground in the Red Wall area so that people are seeing new roads, new hospitals, new schools, new institutions, and they're being employed to do it, I think that would be an expansion of the state that would reap large political benefits as long as it is also shared by a tough hand on immigration and a, a, a return to cultural, in British sense, cons cultural conservatism. She might be cunning enough to pull it off, but she hasn't yet really shown that she gets it.
I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I think on the on the small boat issue, which is becoming a big issue, you mentioned earlier on the numbers in the US. We've we've just passed uh, the milestone of having uh, 1,300 uh, crossings in a single day, about 25,000 so far this year, which is compared to about 300 in 2018. So the numbers are moving up quickly. In order for us to exert more control or intervention on that issue, it ultimately will mean reforming our relationship with the European courts um, and the European human rights legislation, which I think, and my instinct tells me, Liz Truss will, will back away from that battle and will not go there, which I think will be, in the long run, problematic for her. But I think also alongside that, um, and I've written about this in the Substack. I know you've talked about it as well. You know, one of the ironies of Boris Johnson is that however, however much he was compared to Donald Trump, which was always a ridiculous comparison, um, what he's actually ended up leaving the country is a immigration system that in many respects is much more liberal than anything that we had under previous prime ministers, particularly regarding non-EU migration. So what you're likely to see over the next few years is a big increase in overall net migration figures and that migration will in turn be much more uh, distinctive and different from the forms of migration that uh, we saw uh, during our EU membership. It is going to come predominantly from uh, India, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Philippines, rather than Poland, Lithuania, um, the Czech Republic, uh, Spain, Italy, Portugal and so forth. And I think, you know, my, my, my instinct is that's going to have some pretty profound political effects a few years down the line. And so far, remarkably, uh, Liz Truss has said actually very little about her vision for immigration in the country and has also said very little about woke issues. I mean, she has been associated with sending some pretty punchy um, statements into number 10 regarding the need to remove regulations and re to push back against the sort of so-called woke uh, agenda but uh during the leadership campaign and also now as prime minister she she's she said very little so far about that so i think yeah I'm, i i agree with you i think you know i can see a scenario where where maybe maybe this new big energy plan you know goes down quite well in the country maybe she turns her eyes back to leveling up and Maybe she gets back to those 2019 voters, but I've got to say, I think there's a there's a louder voice in my head saying that I'm not entirely convinced Truss and her team completely understand who is voting for them and why they're voting for them. Uh, but either way, 2024 is going to be a vintage year for us political nerds. We've got the uh, U.S. presidential election. We'll probably have a U.K. general election, uh, and Henry. Uh, reading your work and following you has been uh, an insight i would recommend to everybody listening this to uh, our subcast to engage with henry olson on twitter and to make sure you read his column in the washington post he's consistently been ahead of the curve and unlike many people who write on politics he has a very global view uh, and also engages with the research which again is is a rare but but essential uh, part of the uh, part of his arsenal so Henry, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate your insights. I'm sure we'll come back to you after the midterms. Um, but for now, um, thanks very much for, for joining us on the subcast. Thank you very much for having me, Matt.